have you um, have you ever done anything that was particularly difficult and what motivated you to do it was the reward that you know it's like this is really hard I wouldn't do this normally but because there's because there's a reward in store I will I will put in the extra effort to do that um, I think most of us have done that whether it's um, something related to a job or uh, um, uh, uh, something you know we wanted to we wanted to win a scholarship or we wanted to get the prize we wanted to to get the trophy um, things like that maybe we wanted to get a date um, we were willing to put in that extra effort in order to get the reward in our reading today Jesus uh, describes an, to some something to his disciples something that's very hard and um, he he challenges them to do it and then um, he says and by the way there's no reward and <laughs> And, and so, so, um, and, and the reason is because, in, in a way that we'll see, he doesn't really want them to do it. So, um, so we're going to be looking at this passage in chapter 17 of, of Luke's uh, biography of Jesus. We've been following this for the last several weeks. Uh, Jesus is traveling from uh, his his uh, hometown area in in the north, in in a place called Galilee. He's traveling down to the southern part of the country in Jerusalem, where he will eventually face the cross. So he's he's uh, having these encounters along the way, and he's teaching different things, mostly to his disciples, but sometimes to crowds and sometimes to people who are hostile to him. So Jesus is having these conversations, and so we're picking up one that takes place in chapter 17. So um, we read, Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to trip and fall into sin must happen. Now that's that's actually kind of puzzling right there because because why must they happen? You know, you're Jesus. Can't you do something about it? And you know, the the story of the Bible is yes, he can. But the short answer is he's saying sin's not going away. Sin's not going away until he returns. When he returns in glory, uh, sin will be uh, utterly defeated. But uh, right now, sin is still around, and it's it doesn't have the power it once had because. Because Jesus has died and risen, risen again, um, sin no longer has the power it used to have, but it's still around, and it can it can be something that we trip over. That's what the language he says: things that cause people to trip and fall into sin must happen, not because it can force them to do things, but just simply because they weren't wary, they they weren't paying attention, and sin uh, entangled them. In the in the um, letter to the Hebrews. We read the same kind of language. Let's throw off any extra baggage and get rid of the sin that trips us up and fix our eyes on Jesus. So so we see this kind of language. Sin is not going away. And because sin is not going away, Jesus says um, that that um, that it is a bad thing uh, for um, he says he says how terrible it is for the person through whom those things happen. So there are there are going to be things that cause people to sin. And people often have a role in that, not just as the sinner, but they are they are contributing to the circumstances of it. And so, so Jesus says um, that it's terrible for them, uh, for for the for the person through whom those things happen. So um, this is this is something that uh, that happens all the time. I mean, we we do we do things that cause other people to sin. Sometimes we don't even know. You know, the president can make a decision and, you know, halfway across the planet, something could happen that affects that person's life. But most of us don't have that kind of a situation. Most of us, we, we, we worry about the people who are close to us, the, the people who, in whose lives we play a part. Um, and because, because we know that the things we do 
um, affect the people around us. I mean, uh, if you were to ask any of us, probably, uh, you know, what's what's your story? What we'd find out is that who we are has a lot to do with who we know. You know, our parents or our, our grandparents, maybe our siblings, maybe a spouse. Um, that there there are other people who've affected us and changed the course of our life. So we know that that happens. That that people are affected by the people around them. Um, so so Jesus is saying. The, you may have an effect on the people around you, that you may cause them to fall into sin. And we know that that happens. But Jesus in particular is talking about um, sin as something, uh, people not just tripping up, not just any old effect, but people tripping, people tripping and falling into sin. And I think in particular what he's getting at there is make them lose their faith in God, make them turn away from God. There's things we do that can either um, help people be encouraged to continue um, to to uh, be engaged with God, and there's things we can do that can actually weaken their, their interest in being um, a part of the things of God. This is one of the reasons, obviously, churches are a place. You can probably think of scandals that have happened in churches. Um, maybe maybe a church you were a part of, maybe a church you just heard about in the news, but a big scandal happened, and um, that's why there is uh, language like this in the New Testament. The church's supervisor must be without fault. So um, so uh, they must be faithful to their spouse, sober, modest, and honest. They must show hospitality and be skilled at teaching. So Paul, in his letter to, the, uh, to Timothy, is saying, this is this is what the church leaders should ideally be because of that risk that by their behavior they may actually encourage other people to fall into sin that they may trip and fall into sin and if you're a language geek I'm kind of a language geek um, it may interest you to know that when you hear about a church scandal the word scandal actually comes from the same word that that uh, Jesus is using here a thing you trip over uh, a snare or some some kind of a trap that has been set for you that's a scandal and so when you hear about a scandal someplace that means that somebody has caused something it's not just that they're in trouble but that by their behavior they may have actually influenced people around them to turn from God so Jesus says it's a terrible thing when that happens and he says um Things that cause people to trip and fall into sin must happen, but how terrible it is for the person through whom those things happen. It would be better for them to be thrown into a lake with a large stone hung around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to trip and fall into sin. So, Jesus says that the consequences are very serious. Um, there's, you know, this is, this is so hard to get our heads wrapped around Jesus talking this way. Jesus doesn't normally talk about drowning people. But, uh, you know, I've, I've checked the Bible. There's only a couple of places. Um, and so it's kind of hard for us to picture that. But I think what Jesus is saying is there are things that are worse than death. That, that that's how bad this is. You could, you know, if you just drowned, if somebody put a millstone around your neck and tossed you into a lake, all you'd do is drown. But there's things that are worse than that. So Jesus is saying, that's how terrible this is. So because it's so terrible, he says, watch yourselves. Be careful. Be careful in both directions. Be careful that other people aren't influencing you in such a way that they tempt you to sin. Um, and be careful of what you do because you may be having that effect on other people. So he says, watch out. And then he says, um, he says, um, if your brother or sister sins, warn them to stop. So I don't know how many of you have tried that. I, I, I've got some ideas how you can do that well and how you can do it poorly. But first of all, before we can even talk about how, Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, retain moral clarity. 
that that it, this is the place where you can be trapped. If somebody else is sinning, you may say, "Well, I just went along with them. They seemed to think it was a it was a good idea, so I did what they were doing. I did what the group did." Um, Jesus is saying, "No, hold on to some moral clarity. Make sure you're aware." When people are sinning, make sure that you know that that would actually be a sin for you to do that thing. So he says, if your brother or sister sins, um, first of all, you know, watch out, watch out because because that could be a place of danger. And then he says, warn them to stop. So, how do you warn people to stop? Um, well, it can be very hard. As you, uh, you, there were some chuckles, um, it can be very hard. And the best advice I've, I've got for how to uh, how to warn people. Um, is to is to is to make sure that you've got the word "me too" in there somewhere, and what I mean by that is, um, and I think Jesus is, is is on board with this because he says, if your brother or sister sins against you, he's not talking about some abstract sin. I saw I saw this guy do that thing and it bothered me because I'm a busybody. So I, I don't think he's talking about that. I think he's saying if they sin against you. Then you're in a position where you can warn them. So, so can you put me too somewhere in that sentence? Can you say, you know, the problem is when you do that thing, I'm tempted to do it too. That could actually cause me to trip and lose my faith. So that's the reason I'm warning you about the sin because it's a temptation for me. Or alternatively to say it has been and I'm actually having some success that these are the things that's been working for me because I know where you're at because I've been there. And here's what's been helping me. So those are two ways you can warn people that take some of the poison out of telling people, you know, you're sinning. So, but Jesus says one way or the other, warn them to stop. And, um, he then says, if they change their hearts and lives, forgive them. If they change their hearts and lives. Now, we've, we've had this, uh, word before. I like this translation because they've used the, the, the word in, in older translations, it would say repent. But repent is just a word. It's a church word. Nobody knows what it means. You never talk about repenting outside of a church context. So so they've used words that we actually understand if they change their hearts and lives. But it doesn't mean after they've had a long track record of success. He says change their hearts and lives. He means turn around. Say, I've been making you know a big error. I've been, you know, I've, I've missed my turn. I'm going to turn around. It doesn't mean arrive at your destination. It simply means to realize your mistake and and take whatever minimal action is necessary to turn around. That that Jesus is not saying if they if they become you know an incredibly awesome person, you know they've changed their life that way. Maybe that's in store for them. Although Jesus suggests here that it may take some time, right? That you know they may have relapses, they may have they may um, backslide because he says even if someone sins against you seven times in one day. Now you know the temptation there is if. If somebody's sinning seven times, remember that's that's the very big number. Um, if someone is sinning that much, you may say, "Well, they're not really sincere. They're not changing their hearts and lives. They're just trying to get me to forgive them or something like that." So, so Jesus is saying, even if they even if they're struggling, just assume that they're struggling. That this is something that is overpowering them, and so keep forgiving them. Um, and he says, um, "If they return to you seven times and says, I'm changing my ways." I am. I have not yet finished changing my ways. If they say I am, then you must forgive that person. And Jesus says must. So sometimes must is as troublesome as drowning. So he says, sin is not going away. And because it's not, that means that 
all of us have a role to serve, that all of us need to need to be on guard. We need to uh, be careful about what we do, and we need to be careful about how other people influence us. So because of sin, we should all do better. So that's the first part of what he says here. Now, I'm going to jump over the next two verses, and we'll come back to them in a minute. But um, but I want to come back to it because I think that they, they're understood uh, best in terms of what he says um, in the next verses after that, 7 through 10. So um, if if we're asked to do something that's hard, very hard, if my brother or sister comes to me the seventh time and says, I'm changing my ways, it's very hard to say, sure, you know, it's very easy to say, sure you are. Um, it's very hard to mean that they really are and to mean, yes, I forgive you. So I think the the... the the tendency we might have is to say, well, that's very hard. Is there a reward? You know, what do I get if I do that? What, what, you know, why should I? Why should I do that? Is there some special reward for me? And Jesus gives this little parable. He says, would any of you say to your servant who just come in from plowing the field, uh, from, from the field after plowing or tending sheep, come sit down for dinner? Wouldn't you say instead, fix my dinner? Put in the clothes of a table servant and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, after that, you can eat and drink. He says, you won't thank the servant because the servant did what you asked, will you? He's not saying, you know, you won't say thank you when they hand you the dish or something. He's saying, will you feel like they have done something above and beyond? Have they done anything special? No, they're just doing their job. Now, I should probably point out here because some people... Um, different translations, instead of servant, they'll use the word slave. And the, the difference between them is, is too fine for us to appreciate 2,000 years later, that servants and slaves were pretty much interchangeable terms in those days. So um, people say, is Jesus condoning slavery here? Is he saying you should just exploit your workers? Um, and um, no, he's using, he's using a, a cultural um, uh, uh, institution it, to illustrate something. It's the same way as last week. If you were here last week, and if you weren't, you can, you can catch up online. But last week, he talked about how this dishonest manager did something that was very clever. So he's not saying be a dishonest manager. He's simply using the institutions that exist and saying, see, see, this is clever, or in this case, um, you wouldn't thank somebody. You wouldn't feel that somebody has gone above and beyond the call if, if all they've done is what servants are supposed to do. Uh, last week I saw this um, parody article in the Babylon Bee. It says, Cafe with self-serve, uh, self-order kiosks and self-serve coffee asks if you want to leave a tip. <laughs> and, and it's that kind of idea, you know, the thought, well, why would I do that, right? This is the same idea. Jesus is saying, if, if you went in and you punched all the buttons and then you ran your card and then you went over and got the coffee out of the machine... Why should I give anybody a tip, right? Jesus is saying the same thing. What have you done special? What's what's the big deal? What have you done that you weren't supposed to do? And the idea here is that is that that's what God expects from us. The the standard that God expects is that we would be forgiving people and that we would not sin. Those are those are kind of the basics of what God expects from us. Or or uh, I don't know if expects is the right word. That's what God. Um, has ordained for us to do, and whether whether God um, expects them or not, the the point is, if we do it, we haven't put God in our debt. You know, God didn't say, "Oh, good, thank you. I couldn't do that." You know, I'm so glad that you did that instead of me. 
in the book of Job, uh, the, the speaker says, can a human being be useful to God? Can you, by being forgiving or by not sinning or whatever, can you do anything that God couldn't do for himself? Did, did he rely on you somehow when you did that? You know, no. Um, does the, does, can an intelligent person bring profit? Is God scratching his head up in heaven going, if only I could solve this problem. And then you say, hey, wait, have you considered, right? You know, the, 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 they're saying there's nothing you can do that God can't do for himself. That you don't have any ability to give something to God that he would go, oh, okay, then let, let me, you know, let me pay that back to you. That's, thank you. Right? You're not in a position to do that. Does he gain when you perfect your ways? No, he doesn't gain. He wants you to do it. But no, there's no special reward for it. In um, one of my favorite books, and if you haven't read it, I really encourage you to. It's a book um, called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And he has this example. He says, when we talk of a man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, it is like a small child going to his father and saying, Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course, the father does, and he is very pleased with the child's present. It's all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. That we're not giving God anything that he doesn't already have. We're not supplying anything, although he can be pleased by what we do. So Jesus says, verse 10, he says, In the same way, when you've done everything that's required of you, you should say, we servants deserve no special praise. We've only done our duty. So Jesus says, no, there's not a reward like you're thinking about. If you want a reward, surpass perfect. You know, if you can somehow go beyond perfection, then we can talk about a reward. But in the meantime, no, you're not going to, you're not even going to do that. But you're not even going to make it perfect. But, but you certainly don't get a reward even if you did get to perfect. Now, does that mean that there's no reward? Well, not in the sense of a bribe to, to persuade you to do something. There's not that kind of reward. But the New Testament is full of promises of reward. Um, uh, just in the very next chapter, uh, Luke is going to record Jesus saying, I assure you, anyone who's left house, husband, wife, brothers, sisters, parents, or children because of God's kingdom will receive many times more in this age and eternal life in the coming age. Jesus says, if, if the circumstances of your life, if, if because following Jesus causes you to lose any of those things, you'll be, you'll be repaid, um, uh, many times more in this age. He's not talking about pie in the sky by and by. He's saying, He's saying, in this age, you'll be rewarded and eternal life in the age to come. So there are rewards. And since I've already quoted C.S. Lewis once, once you get started, it's hard to stop. Um, so here's something he wrote in The Weight of Glory. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The reward for not sinning is not sinning. So, yes, there is a reward. You, your, your reward is you no longer sin. You no longer are mastered by that. You no longer have to come in um, and apologize to people because, because of that particular sin. Now, 
I don't know what it was like in the first century. They didn't have advertising agencies in the first century, but we do today. And so the obvious question for us today is, yeah, but what if the sin is fun? What if it's fun? Well, the question there is fun for whom, right? Because there can be things I do that are fun for me, but that cause you to trip, that cause you to trip and turn into turn, turn away from sin. And Jesus has already talked about that. So, so that, but there's also the possibility, you know, when I say, um, I can cause somebody else to trip and fall into sin, maybe that person is me, you know, because sometimes that happens, right? The first hit is free, but after that it can become a tyrant. There's a, one of my favorite, um, parts of The Simpsons, one of my favorite lines from The Simpsons is, Homer Simpson is, is drinking, um, gin? from a mayonnaise jar half full of mayonnaise, and he's shaking it up and drinking it. And Marge says, don't you know that that's bad for you? And he says, that's a problem for future Homer. And then he says, man, I don't envy that guy. (laughs) So sometimes the reward for not sinning is not sinning. You could be the person who you're tripping up and leading into sin. So... That's that's Jesus' answer to the question, do you get a reward? If you do this hard thing, if you forgive your brother or sister, if you guard your own behavior so that you're not causing other people to trip and fall into sin, if you do all those things, do you get a reward? Yes, you do get a reward. You get the reward of not doing it. But no, you don't get some special you don't get a tip like a coffee machine should get a tip. So with that, with that understanding, now I think we can look at verses five and six and understand what's going on there. The apostles say to the Lord, well, if there's no reward, then I'm just going to have to trust you a whole lot more than I do now. Because right now, not so sure I want to go, go along with this. So the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord says, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus is saying, the smallest amount of uh, faith that there could be, you know, proverbially, the mustard seed was the smallest seed, that if you had even that little bit of faith, that's enough. Because ultimately, faith is not something you have. It's not like a muscle you exercise. I mean, you hear that analogy, and there's some, some, there's some places where it maps on correctly, but it's not something you have. What it is, faith is the place where God operates through you. So it really doesn't matter whether it's big or small in the sense of, is there anything God can't do if you have faith? Yes, you can. I mean, no, there's not anything God can't do. There's anything you can do. And Jesus says you can, you can cause a tree to jump up and be planted in the seed. See, because it's not really you doing it. It's God working through that faith. And it doesn't matter whether it's a small, small amount of faith or, or a big amount of faith. And, um, it doesn't mean faith can't grow, but, it means that it doesn't matter how big it is. You you sometimes hear stories about someone who's a brand new Christian. They've only been, you know, a Christian for three days, and something something astounding happens. That God works in them in a way that's astounding. So it's not a question of, you know, I've spent my life, you know, and I've I've been able to see God at work in my life all this time. Sometimes it's like, no, I just became a Christian, and God is still operating in in me and through me. So. So Jesus says, it's not the amount of faith you have that matters. It's the fact that you have it or don't have it. You're either predisposed to think of God as being as being trustworthy and someone you can turn to, or you're not. And then the only question after that is, what's he going to do? So it's not a question of whether you can do it, 
It's a question of whether you've got a space for God to do it. So faith is the place where God does his miracles. God does his miracles. It's not you doing miracles. It's God doing his miracles through your faith. And I heard this somewhere. I couldn't track down this quote. It's better to have a small faith in a big God than a big faith in a small God. So Jesus is saying that idea here, that that it doesn't matter how much faith you've got because you have a big God. So, so. What do we do with this? <clears throat> how do we how do we put all these pieces together? Well, Jesus has told us, right? Be careful what you do, because the things you do may cause other people to trip and fall into sin. So be careful. And he says, be forgiving, because other people may may make it very difficult to be forgiving. Um, and and maybe um, they may be even tempting you. You may be the person who's, who's being tempted to fall away into sin, in which case you want to forgive them all the more, right? He says terrible, you know, drowning in a lake and so forth. You really want to be forgiving if, if that's the situation. So Jesus has posed this and said, here's what you do. And no, there's no reward for it, except you will have done it. And the reason is because Jesus ultimately doesn't really want us to do it. Jesus doesn't want the Christian life to be one of willpower and bearing down and gritting your teeth and white-knuckling it. Jesus is saying, no, that's the point. You have faith. God will do it in you and through you. That, that it's not up to you to just grit your teeth and bear it. That Jesus wants you to turn to God. When you are acting in a way that might trip other people up, turn to God and ask for help. When other people are behaving in a way that you're finding difficult to forgive, ask God for the strength or the the capacity to forgive them. Turn to God. When, When you are tempted because they're doing something that looks awfully fun, turn to God. Jesus is saying that that's the point of faith, that we were never meant to resist evil on our own, that that the whole first half of the Bible is really that story. God says, resist evil, and they don't, 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 and ultimately, Jesus comes because only Jesus made it possible for us to resist evil. So, don't try to do it yourself. And if you do this, people will see. If you don't do it, People will see. If you, if people look at your life and they say, you know what, I don't see any evidence of God working in it, they'll notice. And if they look at you and say, I don't know how they're able to be so forgiving, I don't know what's gotten into them, they'll notice that too. Because the fact is, we are always evangelizing other people. We're either evangelizing them toward God, or as Jesus says, we are causing them, we are we are creating circumstances. The impact of being around us is that they are more likely to trip and fall into sin. We are always evangelizing other people. But we weren't meant to do it by ourselves. So when you're having trouble, don't say, well, I just need to be stronger. Say, I have a very small faith in a very big God and ask God's help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we don't know. This is this is the mystery that that confronts us. Why Jesus defeated sin but did not remove it? That it's still here 
and it still entangles us, and it entangles people who in turn affect us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to do what we can to resist sin. But help us even more to turn to you and rely on your strength so that we can be successful in our efforts to avoid sin. We ask these things, O God, through Christ our Savior. Amen.